Listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Hey, good evening, everybody. It's great to see you out tonight. And as David said, it's great to have those of you joining us online. If you're one of probably a dozen folks in the room tonight that are fairly new to MCC, we are so glad that you're here. We're always glad to see new potential family members come to this place to worship and to discover uh, the God of the Bible. Tonight, I want you to turn two places in your Bible, and if you didn't bring a hardback Bible with you, there's one in the seat bottom close to you, but there were going to be two places. The first, I want you to hold your place at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, that's located towards the back. It's one of Paul's letters to a church just like this church, a real church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then the second place is just a couple books past that in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Now, David said that if you're new and, and you're not uh, familiar with our series, last week we looked at the judgment. The Bible says that we all, it's appointed that all men will die and then face judgment. And we talked about the reality, even the believer will stand before God and give an account for their life. The difference between those who are saved and those who aren't is that Jesus Christ stands there and as the list of how we lived our life is read, he's right there to say that is pardoned, that is forgiven. And that's, that's the difference. Now tonight, we address the subject of what happens to our soul between the moment that we die and our eternal home. We're calling this the in-between. Now, some of you have experienced this personally in life. Some of you will be experiencing it very soon. How many of you have driven by an elementary school, right, public or private? You've driven by an elementary school on the first day of school, and you've seen parents just wandering aimlessly in the parking lot, some of them with tears in their eyes, some in a huddle as, as someone tries to console them. What's going on? Well, they have dropped off their child or grandchild for the first time for kindergarten. I remember doing that two times. First time for my daughter Olivia, who's going to be 16 next month, and the second time for my soon-to-be 11-year-old Emma. And both times were so difficult. Now, did I trust the school? I, absolutely. We have a very, very fine public elementary school right there in Vianna where we live. Did I trust the teachers? Yes, the majority of the teachers at that time in that school were Christians. I, I knew them. I knew where they went to church. I knew what they believed, and, and that was, was excellent. And the reality that I would see her again in four hours, right? I understood that, but yet that was a difficult, difficult moment to let go of their hand and to leave them in that place. We don't like to say goodbye. We don't like to say goodbye, especially to the people that we love, even when we know it's temporary. And what is experienced in that elementary school parking lot is a breeze. 
compared to what's experienced at the graveside, at the funeral home, by us all. It's one thing to leave the people we love in familiar surroundings, but it's something different to release them into a realm that we do not know or that we can't describe. No matter how much we want to avoid it, as, as much as we don't want to discuss it, death is a part of life. And each one of us has to release the hand of one we love into the hand of the one we have not seen. And when this comes, there are questions. And tonight, gratefully, God has given us some very, very affirming answers. So, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the context here is just that. This church in Thessalonica, this group of believers, has had to say goodbye, just like this congregation has here over the last few years especially. They've had to say goodbye to the people that they love. And there were questions, just as there are questions today. Same questions. And so inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul speaks these words to not only them, but through these words, God speaks to us today. Brothers, verse 13 begins, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. What's he saying? I want you to know. I want you to know what happens to a Christian when he dies so that when it happens... You don't have to grieve like the rest of the world. Yes, you're going to grieve. Yes, your heart's going to be troubled. But you don't have to be so full of sorrow as those who have no hope. Why? Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe what? It's the cornerstone passage of our series. We believe that Jesus went and prepared a place for us. Part of that place, the part of that preparation was when he went to Calvary and died for us. We said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come for you that you may be where I am. And so for the believer, he comes for us individually. But as we're talking about in this series, a day will come and that day is certain that we need to be prepared for when he will come for us all. And so here's the first question Paul answers for us here. And that is what happens when a believer dies? What happens when a Christian, an immersed believer in Jesus Christ dies? At death, the Christian immediately enters the presence of God and those who have gone before. Only one of you believes that. Good for you. I'm with you. At death, the Christian immediately enters the presence of God and those who have gone before. Now, some are challenged by the words that the Apostle Paul uses here to describe Christians who die before Jesus' promised second return. In fact, that was part of the discussion among these early believers. He uses this word, fallen asleep. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep asleep. Now, if you go back through Scripture, you're going to see that Jesus has used this term a few times himself when speaking of those who have died. Let me give you a few examples just to be sure we're clear. Lazarus, after he had died and was placed in the tomb for four days, 
Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. When a father named Jairus came to Jesus and said, please, master, please come to my home. My daughter is sick. She is on her deathbed. And while he was there with Jesus, servants came from his house and said, your daughter, your daughter has died. Jesus looked Jairus in the face and he said, the child is not dead, but asleep. Yet in the same conversation, Jesus acknowledges that the child is indeed dead. Why? Because sleep is a metaphor. Sleep is a metaphor to describe this reality. Death for the believer is only temporary. It's only temporary. In fact, I propose to you that as Paul describes our transformation from the mortal to immortal, that it's as fast as the twinkling of an eye. But death for the believer is temporary. But how do we know that? Jesus said it to the thief on the cross who repented. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not three years from now after your soul sleeps. Not, 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 not two decades from now. Not 15 centuries from now, but today you will be with me. Stephen, when he was martyred, Acts 7, 56 says he saw heaven open and the Son of Man standing at God's right side. And as he was near death, what did he say? He said, Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The same words that Jesus said, Father, receive, I commit to you, my spirit. When he died on the cross. Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 through 11 speaks of the souls of martyrs like Stephen who cry out for justice to be carried out on earth. They aren't asleep. They are in the very throne room of God very much awake and present. Matthew 17 3 speaks of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah who had been dead who had left this earth centuries before, now on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ, when he speaks with them face to face. Even Samuel, 1 Samuel 28, 13, Samuel who came back from the grave was described wearing a robe and having the appearance of a God. Why? To be absent of the body, the Bible says, is to be at home with the Lord. The death of a believer is temporary. Now, Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, he describes it as instantaneous. Now, I think of it this way. When we take our last breath on this earth, which I have been a witness to more times than I want to admit, but when we take our last breath on this earth, we take our first breath, our next breath in the very presence of Jesus Christ and Lord. Thank you. This is God's first, yeah, this is God's first statement through Paul to all of us, to all of us who have stood or will stand in the soft dirt near an open grave. I want you to know, God's saying, I want you to know what happens. I want you to know what happens to a Christian when he dies so you won't be full of sorrow as those who, who aren't.
Christians and have no hope. There's a difference in the cry, isn't there? <laughs> There's a difference in the cry. You've, you've heard me tell of times when I've gone to visit, and, and many of you have seen the same thing, where in one chapel of the funeral home, there is a believer in the casket. And on this side, there is a unbeliever. Both sides cry. But the cry of those who recognize that there is no hope, there's a difference. And it's, it's, it's awful. It is but a blip for the believer when we die on the spectrum of eternity. And our hope, our hope lies in the one who experienced death in the grave himself and then rose from the dead. And he promises his return for us. Here's the second thing. And this is perhaps one of the more, more relevant questions for, for many in this room today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul addresses the resurrection body of the believers. Isn't that what we want to know? Or are we familiar to each other? What happens to this body? What about a new body? What's it going to be able to do? Is it going to be skinny? Is it going to be fat? What, what's it going to be? In verse 16, Paul addresses the resurrection body for the believer. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to flip over there with me to verse 35, Paul more specifically in this letter addresses what the resurrection body, what our new body looks like feels like, sounds like. And here's the point. The first point is I can't have a new body without death of the old body. I want you to keep that in mind. I cannot have a resurrected body, a new body, without death of this body, this body. And again, Paul uses this by addressing the question he anticipates from us. Verse 35, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And here's his analogy in verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed like a seed of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Now, if I plant a kernel of corn, <coughs> what do I get from that dead piece of corn? What, what do I get? Anybody in here still know that besides a can? It's not a can of corn, right? Yeah. All right, what, what, what do I get? We get the stalk, but, but, but what, what form does that corn come in? It's corn, right? But it's a whole ear of corn, right? That's alive. If I plant, yes, yeah, several if you're, if you're good at watering it. If I plant, if I plant 
a kernel of wheat. Boy, just the smallest little piece of wheat. What do I get? I get heads of grain. Very much what is dead is brought back to life. He goes on in verse 42, so it will be at the resurrection of the dead. The body, and listen to this, the body that is sown is perishable. This body that we live in, this body that is placed in the ground is what? It's dying from the moment that we're born. And it is dead when it is placed in the ground. That body that is sown perishable is raised up as what? Immortal, alive forever, as imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. What does that mean? This body has been messed up by sin, dishonor, sin. It's raised in glory. It's complete. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but here it is. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, we know all too well that this body that we live in is perishable, do we not? We experience disease. We, we experience heart attacks. We experience strokes. We experience joint pain and memory loss and depression. Paul described this body as a tent, a tent that was once strong. But after it's been weathered by the storm, has some bare spots. Now, for some of you, maybe your tent never has been strong. Your walk has never been steady. You've watched others take for granted the health that you've never had. Either way, Paul says in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 5, we groan in this tent longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, he puts it this way. Jesus will take these dying bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Like his own. Jesus' resurrection body reveals these realities for you and me. Our new body is recognizable. Our new body is recognizable. Now, let me tell you how we know that. Jesus Christ and his resurrected body was recognizable, but it was different. Remember, he appeared in the room where the 11 were, tw excuse me, 10. Thomas wasn't there. Judas was gone. He appeared in that upper room behind locked doors, and they recognized them. Later, when he appeared to Thomas, what did he say? He said, look, Thomas, it's me. See the nail scar in my hand? Uh, feel free to reach up here and feel where they put the spear in my side. Recognizable. We remember that when Mary, who found Jesus outside the tomb, recognized him and, and called him master, we will recognize those who have gone before us to heaven because our new body is, like Christ, recognizable. Second, our spiritual body, our new body, is beyond the natural. 
beyond the natural. As I said, he appeared behind locked doors. The Bible tells us that he appeared to as many as 500 people in different places at the same time. While walking, two of Jesus' disciples encounter him, but don't recognize him at, at first. It was only after he spoke. And then they said, were our spirits not burning within us? It's him. And then they invited him in, and they, they shared a meal together. And that's the third thing that's important to me. Our immortal body recognizes hunger and food. Praise the Lord. It was the resurrected body of Jesus Christ that was cooking fish on the shore that day when he invited Peter to come, and he reinstated him. He, he told him that, yes, you've denied me not once but three times, but, but it's okay, Peter. I've got a plan and a mission for you. What about the wedding banquet prepared for us in heaven? You, you think they just sit around and look at the turkey? I'm sure these examples raise other questions. In fact, my wife has many more curious questions that, that I can't speak about in public. But what's important here, what's important here is that we are at home. What's important here is that people will know us and recognize us that we are reunited with. And what's important is we are without sin and disease and tears. And there's plenty to eat. Now, early in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul describes how all of this will unfold. And this, again, is another reason why we can look at Christ's resurrected body. Here's why. For since death came through a man, who's that man that death came through? It came through Adam and his sin in the garden. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There's the millennium. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? It's death. Here's the final takeaway. I hope you've enjoyed these more brief messages. Christ's return brings an eternal assignment. For all of us. For all of us. In Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul gives three assurances that are important to have settled before Christ's return. He begins, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. With them in the clouds. Who's the them? Those are the believers who have gone before us. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, the first assurance is one that is, that's obvious. But for whatever reason, it was necessary to make clear to the Thessalonian believers and for us today. 
and that's believers who are alive on this earth at the second coming of Christ will be reunited with believers who have gone ahead before us. I know why that was important to them. Don't you? If you don't, you will. <laughs> because it's just a matter of time that a grandparent or a cousin or brother or sister, a child of your own, will go ahead of you. It was important to the early believers to know this, and it's important to us. I especially think about parents <laughs> whose children have gone before them. It gives us peace to know that we'll be reunited with them, that we will recognize them and they will recognize us, that we'll be able to touch them again, that we will be able to feel again, that we will be able to eat together again. All believers will be together at the second coming of the Lord. Now, the second assurance that we have here in 417 is that all believers will be with the Lord forever, right? And so, and so we will be with the Lord forever, verse 17 ends. Forever is eternal. Forever means that our new bodies never wear out. They last forever. No battery changes. Our situation in heaven will not change. There will no longer be the dread of the temporary separation that death on earth brings. There will be no end to the good times shared with those that we love. But the, sure, the third assurance is one that's implied here but is specifically addressed in Luke 16:22. And that is for the unbeliever, those who do not receive Jesus Christ as Savior, death means immediate and eternal separation in hell. Now, that's a tough one. And it's one that we just can't seem to fathom. At least the world can't. After all, they were a, a good person. Uh, after all, God's loving and he's gracious. He's kind. But for the unbeliever, those who do not receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, no matter how good they think they are, death means immediate and eternal separation in hell. Luke describes this in chapter 16, verse 22. Remember the death of the beggar Lazarus and the death of the rich man? The rich man who was in hell and Lazarus who was in heaven as he talked about the great divide between the two that was not after the second coming of Christ that was immediately upon the rich man's death and Lazarus's death heaven and hell are the final destinations of all people based entirely on whether or not they've trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. Matthew 25, 46, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what do we do with 
all of this? And I know there's other questions, and you got that Get Connected card that's inside your program. We've got three more weeks, and I want to make sure that your question is answered. If there's an answer, I will share it with you, and I'll give you the scripture so that you can see it yourself. So down there on the prayer line or whatever, say question, and they'll get it to me on Monday morning, and we will get to work. But, but why all of this? Why does it matter that there's a heaven and a hell? Why does it matter that if we believe in Jesus Christ, that we can have eternity, eternal life with him in heaven? What's it matter? What well, makes all the difference in the world? Certainly for eternity, but, but I'm talking about the here and now. When you have that to look forward to, when you have that in your sights, every day that you are able to not just make it through this life, but every day that you engage this life with God's grace and mercy and his power to get you through, well, that's one day closer to being with him for eternity. I don't know about you, but I get very little time with the people that I love the most, and yet I'm there with them every night. My mom and dad that are here tonight, they live seven minutes away. But because of the busy life that I've chosen, no one else chose it for me, I'm fortunate to see them if one of us makes the effort for an hour that week. And there's going to come a time. <laughs> there's going to come a time when we're separated by this temporary death. <laughs> I'm looking at some of our students, one of them in particular, whose, whose mother was behind me in school a couple of years, who went to be with the Lord this year. <laughs> Life's tough enough without those people that you love. <laughs> but to know with certainty that this little blip of a life that we live compared to the endless eternity, to know that we can be there and that we can be reunited and that we're going to recognize them and that we're going to be able to pick up with conversations, that we're going to be able to spend the time that we wish we would have spent here. Oh, it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world, so much so that we want to align ourselves with God's plan for us here. We want to live a holy life. And what's a holy life? Being holier than everybody else? No. A holy life is being in alignment with him. It's the preparation. It's what gets us ready for that. But it also enables us to live in such a way here that, that I've got to tell you, friends, heaven began for me the day that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Because every day, although I'm not perfect, and although this world around us is, is terrible, the death and the disease and the challenges and the anxieties, <laughs> but every day that I walk with him, it can't be any better than that. To know that he holds it all, and he holds me right there. Tonight, the plea is the same as it has been every night in this series. Why talk about the second coming of Christ? 
Why talk about it? Because we, we haven't talked about it for a long time. And very few of us even think about it because of the life that we're living today. But when we do, it gives us the certain hope that we need that God intended for us to have as we live here. The Apostle Paul gives us all this challenge. Therefore, having overlooked the times when you didn't know this about God, when you didn't know about Jesus Christ, when you were out there living like hell, doing your own thing, maybe living it up, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should turn to Christ because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ, the God who saves, he's calling you. He's, he's calling you to build your eternity, to build your life today on him. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the promise. The promise of your return for us individually, but also the promise of that day as you spoke to the Thessalonians about when you returned for us all and were reunited. God, I, I can't imagine what it's going to be like to be, to be wherever we are and to be drawn up in the air. And we're going to see behind you those that we love, the children that we said goodbye to early or the spouses or the parents and grandparents. And we see them there with you if we're still alive here. And that you'll say, come on, come with me. And from that moment forward, we'll be together for all eternity. I, I can't imagine, but I know it's going to be great because you're the one who planned it. And you're the one who gives it to us. Father, I also can't imagine the horror of being alone forever. Yes, some people, some people believe that they want to join the party in hell. But there is no party in complete and utter darkness. There is no party when the fire that burns, burns forever. There is no party when there is no end to suffering. That as long as believers are living in joy in heaven, that's how long that those who fail to turn to you will burn in hell. Father, thank you for giving us a way. And that way is Jesus Christ. Lord, we repent and we turn to you now. Thank you for accepting us in Jesus' name. As David said, there's one tonight. Lily, Lily's going to go and go on back. She's going to go back there with her brother, Logan. Her brother, Logan, who made this decision back about the time that she is in her life, who's going to baptize her. And it's in that baptism that she places her body, her life in the grave as Jesus Christ did. And Romans 6 says, we have to be buried with him in order to be raised to life with him. And the moment that she comes up out of that water, 
she has that assurance, that hope, that promise. Won't you come? And won't you take that next step tonight?